Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I am joined by Marco Eidinger. Hey, Marco, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Leo. Great to be here. Before we begin, I'll let you introduce yourself and some of the stuff you've been writing about lately. Sure. My name is Marco Eidinger. I'm an enterprise mobile developer for a little bit more than 10 years now. In this time, I worked as an app developer on various enterprise iPhone and iPad applications. And currently, I'm the lead architect for an SDK for iOS written in Swift. Our SDK is closed source, but I'm driving an initiative to open source parts of it. Those parts will be available as Swift packages. Therefore, I had to look into Apple's Swift Package Manager, and I'm more than happy to share my lessons learned with the community through blog posts and by being here. This is awesome. Really happy to have you on. I was really impressed with a lot of your blog posts, and I was happy to have another guest talk about Swift Packages. We've had Dave Verer and Sven Schmidt, who both run the Swift Package Index, but it's uh, I'm glad to have somebody else on today. To really deep dive into Swift packages, something I'm a big fan of, but a lot of people don't have the easiest time getting used to. For me, they've been a godsend compared to CocoaPods. But before we get it started, maybe you want to give like a little history lesson on Swift Package Manager and how it's changed in the last like two years or so. Sure. Looking back two years, which would be then March, April 2020, March, March, April 2020, nothing happened back then. Nothing changed in the world back then, except for Swift Package Manager. (laughs) (laughs) They happened quite a bit, but from a Swift Package Manager (laughs) perspective, I would say it was not really ready for um, broad consumption. A lot of complaint by the community was that you cannot use binary dependencies. You cannot also ship or distribute of binaries, you were not able to include images into your Swift package unless you maybe Base64 encoded them into your source code. You were not able to have um, localized strings into it. So there was a big gap. And I was super stoked when I saw uh, September 2020 with Swift 5.3 that they were adding all these kind of things. And then this is where I think it was a starting point for SDKs to really take Swift Package Manager seriously. At this point, I believe then also the Google Firebase SDK started to look into that. And they are now since last year, they are fully supporting Swift Package Manager thanks to the evolution of Swift Package Manager throughout these years. With Swift 5.4, you have executable targets. You can use now the main attribute in your uh, source code. With 5.5, you have now package collections. You mentioned the, the Swift Package Index. They were right there from the beginning, supporting the dynamic creation of package collections to list all packages from a package owner. And then now lately with Swift 5.6, you have plugins, most prominently the uh, Doxy plugin to easily generate documentation for your Swift package. So overall, it's production ready and major players are using it. Yeah, it was interesting saying like the binary dependencies definitely was a big deal. Now, if you mind me asking, who's your employer? SAP. 
Okay. Have you tried like distributing some of your SDKs as binary dependencies? Because I've heard like that the big thing with like closed source, closed source like projects is that you can at least compile them and then make them to binary dependencies. So they're not like, they can't be like cracked open, I guess, so to speak. Uh, So today we are uh, distributing them through various channels. One is through CocoaPods and having their um, private registry there uh, where you need authentication to download them. But this will change. We are currently looking into Swift Package Manager, not to just distribute binaries, but also parts of them as Swift packages, really. So open source code. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You know, one thing, (laughs) we didn't put it on our talking points, but maybe we should get into is why is Swift Package Manager better than CocoaPods? (laughs) That's an easy one, but a lot of people swear like CocoaPods is better and easier to work with. I disagree, but maybe you want to address that point too. Yeah. I also don't share the notion that CocoaPods is better. It's fundamentally different. First of all, it's not a first-class citizen. Apple Swift Package Manager is a first-class citizen because it is directly integrated in Xcode. And you do not have to heavily modify your Xcode project under the hood to make it work with your packages. That's what CocoaPods does. It creates a workspace and whatnot to really modify your Xcode project to make it work. And if you want to then switch to Cartage or something else, good luck with that. Of course, then CocoaPods is a centralized package manager and Apple Swift Package Manager is a decentralized uh, dependency manager. So th- there are pros for CocoaPods when it maybe comes to discovery, but I think their Swift package registries driven by the open source community are doing a real good job there to make Swift packages discoverable. So I'm a total fan for the Swift Package Manager. Yeah, and central package managers, if anybody has been watching the news lately, um, have their own issues. Like NPM, I know, has certainly their issues. And the other issue I've had with CocoaPods is like keeping track of what Ruby version you should be using and then having to know Ruby and Ruby env and RVM and all that stuff. And it's like, I don't want to get involved in that stuff (laughs) when I'm trying to do iOS development. So, yeah. Swift Package Manager is the way to go. Like you said, it's a first-class citizen, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come with issues. I don't know. Like With Xcode, I've heard of a few issues. I don't know. What what are some issues you've run into with Xcode and Swift Package Manager? Yeah, so Xcode tries to hide some complexity when it comes to Swift Package Manager. You have three options within Xcode. Resolve, package dependencies, reset cache, and then update versions. And I think it's not really clear unless you're getting more deeper into Swift Package Manager, what does this thing mean? And you mentioned NPM. So if people come from from a JavaScript ecosystem and know NPM, they know that there is a log file. So once you have resolved all your dependencies, you have then a file which says, okay, these are for my current build, these are the checked out dependencies. So now what does Resolve does is we'll look into your package manifest and based on the version requirements there, it will 
resolve these packages will download them. And if this file does not exist, it will create it. But otherwise, if this file exists, it will not touch this file. It will just really look and resolve that. It will get you exactly these versions, which are maintained in this package.resolve file. If you want to uptake now newer versions, that's where update comes into place. So if you have package dependencies where you have declared it, I want to have everything up to the next major version. Currently, your dependency is on 1.0. You don't want to have 2.0, but everything in between 1.1, 1.2 will do. Update is the command you want to use to bump up your dependency version within your version requirement range. And then reset is often the, the solution to clean out the caches if you have previously problems with that. So the good thing is, or to, to, to summarize it, is reset and resolve to handle problems and then update if you really want to uptake and bump up your dependencies. And then, of course, you still have your, your Xcode build where you m might still have to clean your your derived data, but that's then really the last resort. Normally, reset and resolve a common solution for problems. Hey, folks, I want to let you know about a sponsor for today's episode, Sentry. Sentry is the way to track errors and performance monitoring for your apps. With over 1 million developers and 80,000 organizations already shipped, Sentry has helped developers like yourself know whenever something is going wrong. They have some great new articles out on things like distributed tracing, front-end work that you're doing on, and they have great tools for iOS developers, as well as server-side Swift. Take some time and go ahead and check out Sentry today and help get your app up and running and integrate it with some awesome error tracking and great performance reports. Go to Sentry.io and use the link in the show notes below to get started. Thank you again to Sentry for sponsoring today's episode. And my understanding is there's like a central cache on the machine. So like, even if you delete all your packages that have been downloaded within your project, it'll still won't have to like download, redownload a lot of that stuff, which makes it a lot faster than it used to be. Yeah, that's right. It'll just use that central cache on your computer, which I have in order to fix certain problems have deleted that and suffered greatly because it's had to re-download every single package all over again. So be forewarned, if you do delete that central package repo dependency on your drive, you're going to end up having to re-download everything, which is going to take forever. So be careful about that as a troubleshooting mechanism. That's a very good point. That's why I have not mentioned this magical command of Swift package. I believe it's a perch cache. Oh, that's a command for it. So I've usually just moved it to trash manually. Okay. Okay. That's actually interesting. So where I've run into this issue is if I've like tagged one of my own packages and then I realized I did something wrong and then I've like re-tagged it, which you should never, ever, ever do, but I do it. Sorry, because nobody's using my packages anyways. And then like, it'll assume like if you get that package again, oh, you already have that package, but I updated it. And it doesn't realize that. So then I have to go in and like delete my tagged version from the central cache and then it re-downloads it correctly. So anyway, I've run into that before or like branches sometimes will run into that too. But yeah. And then the other thing is you've run into issues supporting private binaries 
dependencies in Xcode. Do you want to explain what you mean by that exactly? Um, yeah, so when we started out looking into Swift Package Manager and how to distribute our binaries, we wanted to download them from a server which requires authentication. So how do you do that? And Swift Package Manager added, based on some external contribution from my former product owner, the, the capability to automatically set the HTTP header authorization. Now, this works well for, for normal servers, but if you try to have to host your binaries from a private GitHub repository, so you have to then use the GitHub asset URL to download that. They actually require some additional HTTP headers. Otherwise, they you are getting a redirect or something, so the download doesn't work. So that was recently addressed with Swift uh, 5.6 to really set all the necessary HTTP headers so that download automatically works from repos, which are private. You have to have then authentication. You can either use NetRC or you specify your username and password in the keychain. Okay, that's good to know. And you've you've written about this, right? So we'll yes. post a link to the show notes about how to get overcome that. Let's see what else. Maybe one point of a problem is a misconception about what the platform section in a package manifest means. First of all, for what it's intended, it's to specify a minimum deployment target for a platform other than what the Swift Package Manager says. So, for example, iOS, they're assuming minimum deployment target is iOS 9. You probably don't want to kind of like support all that way back, but maybe iOS 14. But some people really want to build platform-specific packages because they're using UIKit all over the place, which will not compile on macOS. And then they wonder, why does Swift build does not work? Because Swift Package Manager, they're not saying that I'm restricting now this to only the platform. We are expecting that this is a cross-platform package and Swift Package Manager can only support building for the host platform. So running on Mac builds for macOS first and running on Linux, it has to run on Linux. So yeah, if you have like really a platform specific package, you have to use Xcode build to, to, to build it and to test it. Or you're using compiler directives like hashtag if can import or hashtag OS iOS to really then carve out the parts which are platform specific. So if you're building it, that there are no problems. Yes, this I've run into and I've talked about it in my Swift package manager talk, but like I built a package that works on both Linux and watch OS and like it is sprinkled throughout with if can imports and if OS because I want to make sure it works on both both very foreign, very different OSs. Um, and yeah, that's the fail safe way to do it is just using if can import or if OS. One of the things Speaking of which, is I use a lot of Swift UI in my Swift package. So I'll sometimes have a lot of if can import Swift UI. But if it's Swift UI, is it work okay when it comes to Swift package manager as far as like building a package that has UI components using Swift UI? Have you run into into any issues with that? It works fairly well, but there is one thing, one caveat to, to kind of like really know. And this is that Swift packages handle resources differently. 
So if you're accessing normally resources in an Xcode project, you're using bundle.main. And bundle.main is not available in Swift packages. Uh, actually, Xcode will check if your Swift package target has resources and then it synthesizes a static extension on bundle, which is called bundle.module. So you have to use bundle.module. And then Swift UI normally assumes that it's looking into bundle.main. So you have to now use initializers for Swift UI types like text, where you can now inject your different bundle, bundle.module. Some of the Swift UI types, they don't have these kind of flexible APIs. So then you have to use other means for that. So I have blocked about this too. Um, but yeah, that's the, the one thing which I ran into lately, which you have to know that this is just a difference. So what's an example of something in Swift UI where they don't let you pass in the, mo- the bundle.module instead of bundle.made? Do you have one that you remember? Out of my head, not was it maybe picker or something, but text definitely supports it. Yeah, because usually there's a default, like the default value is bundle.main, and then you can just specify if you want to. But have you filed a feedback uh, feed feed on that? Because that seems really strange. Usually you can override the bundle. Yeah, no, I did not. That's a good idea. I should maybe. <laughs> I mean, that seems like an issue with the API. So one thing that I, I wanted to ask, and I've run into this before, I've got pretty large Swift packages. Is there something I'm doing wrong with organization? Because then I started looking at like the possibility of splitting them up into targets. But then I get confused between what, what's the purpose of a target and what's the purpose of a product. And like, will that will splitting my package into targets, even though I have one product, would that help? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? So a target is equivalent to a module in most cases. So normally you use the import statement to access code of that. So you are actually using import and then the target name and not the import of your package name or not the import of your library name. So normally in the simplest form, if you're using Swift package init command, it creates one package with one product and one target. And I think this is the easiest way. Swift Apple Package Manager, they are promoting that you are actually splitting up more and you're utilizing modules and multiple targets. But I have a concern here then that it's getting very difficult to potentially build a pre-compiled version of your Swift package. That becomes interesting for, for SDK developers. But yeah, targets... You can have as many targets as you want. And then thankfully, they made it easier now that you even can conditionalize target dependencies to say, okay, if you're running on watchOS, then I don't need this target. So that's pretty cool that they added that. But there is a problem if you want to use this conditionalized feature on binary frameworks. I think there's a bug file for Swift Package Manager on that. Yeah, I mean, I've done that before where I used it today. There was a Swift package that was only working on watchOS and I had to like include the target conditionally. So yeah, I've definitely used that before. So like if products are what you publicly want to share with the community, right? And a target, would that be a component of the product, but it could also be the namespace that you are importing as well. 
So uh, the target as the module representation is the namespace, essentially. Your product has to have a target, but a target doesn't have to have a product like the test target, for example. That is a good example where it's not related to a product. But yeah, normally you have for a product at least one target, but you can have multiple ones and your target can depend on on other targets. Well, that makes sense because I've imported tar- like products before and they've come with multiple namespaces. And now I understand why it's because they come with multiple targets, right? Like Vapor is a good example of that or Swift Package Manager itself comes with, with a ton of targets if you've ever taken a look. So that makes that makes total sense. So basically, if you like want to split it up into like different namespaces, I guess, for your developer that imports your product, that's where kind of creating multiple targets would make sense, I guess, right? Yes, it does. But one point I want to make it aware, if you are trying later on to build a binary framework as a representation for your Swift package, because maybe your consumers want to have a pre-compiled version to make it faster, that means normally you will have difficulties because a binary framework can only have one module. So if you have multiple modules in your Swift package, you have to create a binary framework for each of the modules. And because you have then maybe a target which depends on a target, it's getting really complicated really fast. So are there any issues with using multiple targets and binary dependencies? So binary cannot depend on a Swift package. I think this is a big problem which people face. But for me as an SDK developer, I rather think about can I potentially create a binary representing my Swift package? Because people don't want to build my Swift package all the time. They want to have a pre-compiled version of that. And there you have to have in mind that a binary framework can only have one module. So if you have a Swift package with multiple targets, you have to create for each target a binary framework. And this gets very quickly, very complex because your target might depend on another target. This target depends on another one. So you have already then three binary frameworks to build which depend on each other. So would you suggest most developers just stick with one target per product when they start off? I would say if you try to modularize your app and breaking it down into multiple packages, then yeah, stick with one product and one target. Okay. So let's talk about one of my favorite topics, continuous integration. What have you really utilized when it comes to your Swift packages and when it comes to continuous integration? uh, What are some tips that you have yourself? What environments have you been using, I guess, too? I'm a big fan of GitHub Actions. Right now, they're getting a bad rap because they still have not out yet on macOS 12 virtual environment. I got invited to the private beta. I got one one of the lucky ones. Yay, me. (laughs) Me too. Me too. (laughs) But it's really a shame because without the macOS 12 virtual environment, you can't build on Xcode 13.3. But nevertheless, I'm a big fan of GitHub Actions. And what I saw the need is that if you are a package author and you have package dependencies, you want to keep up with new versions of your package dependency and how you can do that in a CI environment. So I wrote a GitHub action to exactly does that. It utilizes Swift package update to 
identify if there are new versions. And then I'm actually using another tool by the folks provided from the Swift Package Index to actually get also some release information about this. And you can then put this into a workflow which creates a pull request, takes this information into the and add this as the pull request description. For package consumers in Xcode projects, then there's another great GitHub action which does the same thing, but it will update your Xcode project to check for outdated versions of package dependencies and will update then the Xcode project accordingly. Hey folks, I want to let you know about one of the sponsors of today's episode, AppFigures. AppFigures is the leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps, packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you watched our episode a few months ago with Ariel, you know how important it is to optimize your apps for the App Store. No matter how great your app is, if it's not noticed, it's not really worth your time and money to spend on. If you're making money, for instance, with subscriptions, you need to know and you need to stay on top of the numbers so that you can figure out what to do next. AppFigures has worked all this out. If you're a developer, sometimes some of this App Store stuff can be a distraction from creating and designing a really good app. But by bringing your core metrics to the forefront and calculating key data sets like MRR and churn, they make it easy to understand what's happening and why. And that gives you more time to really build your app and really design it well and grow your subscription business. If you're not sure where to get started analyzing your subscriptions, then check out the guides and the videos at appfigures.com. They have a really great YouTube channel I'm going to post in the links below. There they do things like This Week in Apps where Ariel gives you updates on different trends of what's going on in the App Store as they change both based on the customers you have, but also based on changes to the App Store as they happen. And also, once you get to appfigures.com, you have no excuse not to give them a try. They have a free trial available that will help you get started on building your audience and help understand how to get noticed in the App Store today. If you like it, then you can use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. You have no excuse not to give this a try. Again, use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. I want to thank the folks at AppFigures for sponsoring today's episode. So some of the stuff that I've done is linting text coverage, using stuff like SwiftLint, SwiftFormat. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, I said test coverage, unit testing, like just running through that, building doxy documentation. I've done that through CI, GitHub Actions. One thing I need to start doing, and I haven't done yet, and I've run into this actually with a couple of my packages. Um, thankfully, the folks at Sven at Swift Package Index helped me out with this, but you should probably run Xcode build on whatever platforms you are supporting. Or if you're supporting Linux, like you should run it on a Linux image as well as a Mac OS image. That's something to think about as well if you're going to support this for multiple OSs. It's not that hard. It's free. I've had documentation on it as well, and I'll, I'll share a link to that. But yeah, those are some of the things that I've worked with as well. And you have that GitHub action, which we'll put a link to in the show notes as well to keep your, your dependencies up to date. I've also worked with GitLab as well for some of my private stuff. Um, and it, it's GitLab is really good because then you can actually run on a local machine um, and not have to wait for a private beta. So yeah, what were you going to say? Regarding CI setup, so um, you mentioned Doxy and this is a Doxy plugin, which is a good example where the future is heading uh, now with Swift 
5.6, where you have built plugins. Previously, you had community plugins maybe to try to add functionality. You add these as a package dependency, as a dev dependency, so to say, to then have Git hooks or SwiftLint um, into that. I was in the past rather cautious about this and I stayed away because package manifest does not have a clear way to categorize dev dependencies as for example npm does. So I prefer mint which is a package manager to install and run executable swift packages. I can specify a list of version packages of very specific package versions. I put them into a mint file and then I write scripts in a make file or in a rake file. And then I use this in my CI workflow. Does Mint, I've used Mint before, it's fantastic. Does Mint have like an equivalent of like a brew file where you can like list out what you want to use as a dependency? Yes, that's the Mint file. That is a Mint file. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I have gone the evil route where I put my dev dependencies in my Swift package. And that's where I end up using something like Commodore to do Git hooks or uh, Rocket, which uh, will remove the dev dependencies for your tagged releases. So you're saying with 5.6, you don't need to do that anymore, do you? Like you can actually have dev dependencies or is that not in yet? So I think there were an improvement for... Previously, why I stayed away is because you had even problems, for example, if you want to use Nimble, in your test target and you add the package for Nimble to your package manifest. Now you have maybe a problem if your package dependency uses this as well, but does have a conflicting version requirement. And then you had a problem. Swift Package Manager now got smarter over the time. And for test targets, it doesn't raise a concern. And also if you are not using any product of the package in one of your targets, it also does not matter. So it got better, um, but exactly this, what Rocket then claims that before you're releasing a package that you are removing parts of your manifest and later on maybe add them to your main branch then back. This is just a hassle which I see is, which I personally try to avoid. That's why I'm not using it. Even for, for build and command plugins, I'm hoping that Swift Package Manager will further improve the structure of the package manifest to maybe make it more clear what are really dev dependencies. And that's why I'm staying out of it right now and I'm using Mint and Mint file for that. You're probably a better man for it than I am. I totally understand. What are some like proposals that they have in order to get around this? Have you seen anything? Unfortunately, not. But um, what I read on Twitter is even that early feedback from the community is that what was done with 5.6 with the build plugins, that this is just a starting point, that there seems to be a, quite some problems with that okay. from an adoption perspective. And I guess that they, they will put something like in the pipeline to to address that. And maybe if I'm getting lucky, they will also address the, the problem of death dependencies. Right, right. So we've talked about creating a Swift package. How about actually like using or acquiring a Swift package? What are some ways to like find a library that's going to help you out in your app and being able to know if it's... Well, let's let's start there. Let's just say, how do you find a good package that does what you want it to do? 
what are some ways that you've gone about it? Yeah, so I'm so there are three major players, uh, three major registries which list Swift Swift packages. One we have mentioned multiple times is Swift Package Index, and that's personally my favorite. It has a lot of features. Show it has compatibility reports, playground support yeah sven does an amazing job building that out it's amazing so yeah definitely check that one out absolutely it's great to discover packages maybe it's a little bit more complicated to to add your package when comparing it to to other solutions there's swift package registry which is also a good point and there's a swift pack swift pack automatically crawls github for new packages, so you as a package author, you don't have to do anything and it will list all the packages on GitHub. But then again, if you're using GitLab, it's not the right thing for you. I've worked with Swift Package Index and yeah, it's pretty much tied to GitHub in a, in a thousand ways and there's challenges dealing with GitLab. So I totally understand that. Even though I, I love GitLab, don't get me wrong, it's just... It's not the premier open source platform for your repos right now. It's the way it is. So, yeah, unfortunately, GitHub really dropped the ball. GitHub dropped the ball. They were announcing with their package registries what they have that they also wanted to support Swift at some point, but they never followed up with that. So, yeah, I remember that. And I always like every month or a couple months, I'll like Google it and be like, whatever happened with that? And then, so like GitHub just hasn't done anything. Yeah, they just went silent. Uh, you gotta be stuck with like Maven and NPM, those guys. Lucky. So let's say you found a good package. What are some good good metrics to look at to know if this might be something stable enough to use in your app? Stability is, of course, one concern. And I would look at the amount of how many versions it already has. I would look into the readme, into the way of can you contribute to it in case there are situations where you need additional features. Uh, does it have a change lock and does it adhere to semantic versioning? Just because with Package Manager claims that you have semantic versioning doesn't mean that really package offers follow through on that promise. Uh, so these are things I would look at. And there's some really good Swift packages out there actually as tooling to, for example, predict what's the impact to your app binary size if you add this package to your app. So, Do you know any? Yeah, there, I think it's called Swift Package Info, something okay. like this. I can look up the, the link and then we can share it. In the notes, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, so for me, I look at the last time it was updated, how frequently is it updated, and in a good way. Like, if it hasn't been updated in a year and it's like it's still like maybe supports 5.2 or 5.3, I would be a little bit hesitant that nobody's upkeeping it. I would look at things like the readme file, if it's thorough and well documented, how many stars does it have, or even forks. You want to see something that's alive and that's used. Because if it's not, it's probably not well maintained honestly. And if you're going to use it, it's your risk. Like you're just going to have to fork it if, if it doesn't do exactly what you want it to do. And that's now fallen on your shoulder. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way I look at it. So let's talk about, we kind of dabbled into it, but I don't know if you have any more points you want to make about like 
optimizing your package.swift file. Do you want to get into that? What did we forget that we haven't mentioned yet? I think we talked about one lib should have one target, but you can have a monorep. So I don't want to limit people if they want to do that. Like if you look at the Google Firebase SDK, they have one repo where they list all their their, their Swift packages in there. Um, but they actually then try to adhere that for one package really has then one lib and one target. I would say in general, choose your package dependencies well and really think about do you need a package dependencies and then yeah look at your version requirement do you really want to take the risk to uptake changes up to the major version or do you maybe want to pinpoint that to an exact version the problem is if you're pinpointing it to an exact version if then your package becomes popular and maybe ends up as a package dependency in other ones, yep. then that might can get a problem. Yeah, that's where something like up to minor might be a better option because then you have a little bit more control, but you also can limit it. Because like you said, if you lock yourself into that particular version, like now everybody has to be lockstep into that version. And like if you update your package, yeah. like everything else that's dependent on that, yeah, it's... Not exactly the best way to go sometimes. One of the questions that I had is like, if you have like a large scale project where you're developing multiple Swift packages, like let's say you have an application and you're using all these packages that you've developed that are unrelated and different repos. What, like I've gone the route of using submodules. That way I can like cross develop them and like work on them all at the same time. Like I know people who've, who've done this and like, there's no really good solution. What, do you have any recommendations on that? I would try to break up then the, the, the app, the functionality in multiple packages where a feature represents then really a package. And uh, it's not that difficult if you identify code to break up into its own module that you first start with a local package, move the files, change the access levels, it has to be public, and then add the package to your app. That normally uh, works well. Submodules, personally, I try to avoid because they are complicated to understand and deal with, with from a lifecycle perspective. Right. The reason that I go that route is like, I want, like, okay, the repo is a public repo and my app is private, but then I want to be able to develop that package as I use it in the app. And like, I don't have another way to do it because once you bring in that dependency, if it's not a local dependency, the file is locked, right? So I don't know what else to do in those situations. You know what I mean? And from a then this dependency is maybe just public but not open, so you can't even subclass it and and such problematics. Well, there, it's my package that I'm developing. I'm developing the pa Swift package is public, the app is not. So then, like. How do I develop that package and fix it if there's certain issues with it while I'm developing the app? I guess that's what I mean. You can override like a remote package dependency with a local one and try to do the fix there first. And then you update later on your remote repository for that matter. Oh, so you're basically like, like you said, kind of like do a mono repo and then sync that particular local directory with the remote repo. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because then you don't have to deal with submodules. So when I first started delving into Swift Packet, I was like kind of curious about back engineering it, I guess. 
And that's when I first saw the Swift Package Manager package itself. So Swift Package Manager is actual is an actual Swift package, right? And that's where I saw like all these products and targets and stuff. And I was like, whoa, they're taking it to the max level as far as how they're using package.swift. Is there any benefit into delving into it or maybe even using that package itself? I think, first of all, it's great from Apple that they open source the Swift Package Manager. And looking at the repo itself gives you an understanding about the inner works, which personally helps me to clarify intent and capabilities. And also, they're very welcome for external contributions. But for tool developers, it's as you said, it's really interesting to then maybe leverage the Swift package manager library to potentially create an executable Swift package where you can then programmatically access other packages, manifests, process them, print them out, or do some analytics on that. So I think there's a benefit, but more for advanced developers who might think about contributing to the package manager or tool developers to are really then trying to do some analytical tools related to Swift packages. But for the normal app developer, I don't think that they have to uh, delve into all these details. What was the most interesting thing you found when you delved into it yourself? I think really the main point that they were even modularizing it to a point where you can use it as an own library, that was pretty impressive of me. Kind of like that is something which I have not thought about that before, that that's possible. And yeah, that they're using their own tools like Swift Argument Parser. Yeah, that's recent too. Like they weren't using Argument Parser until I think 5.5 or 5.4 they started bringing it in. Yeah. So it's great that you can see that they're using their own tools for that. That's always pretty amazing and gives you confidence in for these tools then. Have you made a contribution? I personally, I did not, but my former product owner did. And he laid the foundation so that Swift Package Manager uh, can understand uh, NetRC and can use it for uh, basic authentication calls to download binaries. Nice. That's awesome. Marco, was there anything else we want to cover? This was dense. This was a lot. Did we miss anything? No, I think we we covered a lot of stuff. Um, recently, I created a bunch of blog posts about this, and I still have some more in the pipeline. So if we have missed anything, people can read about it. Yeah, check the show notes. We'll have a bunch of links to your blog posts. And then, Marco, where can people find you online and some of the new blog posts you'll have out on SPM? I'm on Twitter, Marco Eidinger. Just DM me on there. It's the easiest way. And my blog is uh, blog.eidinger.info. So check it out for for more. You also have another like uh, blog collection of iOS dev articles, right? From other people, the iOS uh, dev. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I already forget about this. The iOS uh, devupdates.com. It's an... A feed aggregator based on Dave's wonderful iOS dev directory. Yeah, we always need more of those feed aggregators. I have one too that probably hasn't been updated in a year, but yeah, welcome to the club. Well, Marco, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here and talking with you. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. 
Please take some time, post a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, like and subscribe, please. If you have any topic ideas, if you here's one. If you are going to put out a CFP this, this year for one of these fantastic conferences that are coming up and you want to practice your talk, DM me, reach out, because I would love to have you on the show to, to quote, practice your topic. So let me know. I'd love to have you on. Thanks again. And I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. <laughs>